just like that. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the High Button Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Belanger. Today's episode is brought to you by ProLineStadium.com, Atlantic Canada's home field for great sports betting. Step into the octagon with ProLine offers, okay? You could earn up to $50 in free play by betting on combat sports. Spend $20 on a single ProLine wager, which includes at least one combat sporting event at ProLineStadium.com between February 13th and March 5th, and you'll be able to receive a $5 token that can be used on any sport on ProLine Fantasies, Futures, or Stadium Bets. A total of 10 tokens can be earned and must be used by March 31st. Bet on ProLine all season long at ProLineStadium.com or download the ALC app. Please play responsibly. Must be 19 years of age or older. Who's better than you right now? Friday afternoon, you made it through the week. Well, it doesn't really matter what time of day or what day of the week you're listening to this. Whatever, you made it. A brand new high-button podcast for you. We have a doozy for you. John Paris Jr. If you don't know who John Paris Jr. is, he comes from Windsor, Nova Scotia, right here in our backyard in Halifax. He was a Canadian, former professional ice hockey player and coach. Fun fact, he was the first black person to coach a pro hockey team, the Atlanta Knights and the International Hockey League. He won a Turner Cup in 1994, with the in the International Hockey League as well. Hockey Nova Scotia has a campaign going right now called Paris to Toronto to try to get John Paris Jr. into the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. Play on words, Paris to Toronto. Um, John has accomplished some amazing things over his hockey career, and I'm excited to have him on the podcast to share some of these stories, some of these accomplishments, and, and some of the things that he had to go through to get to where he is today. He's from, or excuse me, like I said, he's from Windsor. Um, he currently lives in Texas. Hockey Nova Scotia got him here in Halifax, in Nova Scotia, whatever you want to call it, uh, to do a media tour and talk about this campaign, Paris to Toronto, to try to get him into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh, we're looking for signatures. I'm going to link the petition on, you know, in this, you'll, you'll be able to find the petition. It'll be on Facebook. It'll be probably linked at the description at the bottom of this podcast episode. Um So you can listen to this episode, sign the petition, and we can get uh, Paris to Toronto. It's going to be a great episode. I'm Justin. We're talking to John Paris Jr. This is the High Button Podcast. Here we go. You know what comes next. John, do you mind if I call you John first of all? No, not a problem. John, welcome to the High Button Podcast, sir. I'm happy to have you here uh, in Nova Scotia, Halifax. Welcome. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Right, so, yeah, the travel was good? Texas? Excellent. Here? Just a little long, but other than that, it was good. Where's the layover? Oh, yeah. A couple what? of hours. The layover was a couple of hours in Toronto. Okay. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Well, how's uh, how's life right now for you? Is it exciting? Is it nerve-wracking? Is it busy? I know with the, the campaign Hockey Nova Scotia is putting together, uh, Paris to Toronto, there's a lot happening. How, how do you feel about all of this right now? Busy right now. Yeah. But, uh, no, very grateful for what they're doing. It's humbling, like I said. Uh, I've been saying all morning, but uh, without repeating myself. But uh, no, I uh, I appreciate what's being done. It's uh, something I never would have thought of before. And now that it's happening, uh, heck, it's great. Good stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, it's good that you're taking it on full uh, full steam ahead. It's a lot, but... Hopefully it works out and we get the petition signed and you can get to the Hockey Hall of Fame. That's the goal, correct? Uh, correct. That, it would be uh, malsane of me not to uh, give them all the efforts that I can give them, what they need, especially where they're putting the efforts into that. 
they didn't have to do that. And I've always said just the fact that they did that suffices for me, regardless of the results. I find that it's it's not only humbling, it's it's something that everybody should understand that good people are good people and people do things simply out of the goodness of their heart or because they have a, an objective. So usually when that happens, we have to get back to the people that are helping us out too. So that's what I'm trying to do right now. And it's my way of showing them respect. Good stuff. So what was it like growing up in Windsor, Nova Scotia? There must have been a, a lot of people helping you out back in the day growing up there. What was it like growing up in Windsor? Great. Uh, the uh, I still have a lot of contacts there. Uh, I grew up there playing hockey with my friends and acquaintances. My dad, uh, of course, was the one who initiated me into the game, but the environment made it so that I stayed in the game and enjoyed it. But we played. That's what we did. We didn't have the modern technology they have today. So, And even if we did, we'd still be playing hockey. Uh, we'd be at the arena uh, as every opportunity we had, we'd be at the rink or on an outdoor pond, Dill Pond, Campbell's Pond, long, because uh, Dill Pond is where hockey first started. So, uh, oh yeah, yeah. Dill, Dill pond, pond, yes, right. correct. You must have some stories from back in the day of the origins of hockey coming mm -hmm. from Windsor. Yes, yes. We used to go to the Dill Farm. My dad would take me there, and uh, Mrs. Dill Howard Dill, who was a, a pumpkin king, I guess, of the world. <laughs> Uh, his his wife would make us hot chocolate and things like that. I, I still remember that. And we'd go back to the pond. We'd also go in, in this summer and fall apples. You'd have the August apples and the fall apples. So we'd go there also and get apples, all we wanted. And he would just say, go and get some. <laughs> but uh, no, and I was, we, I was very close to Howard Dill. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, he's uh, passed, but uh, very close to him. So... And then we had Campbell's Pond that we would go to, and we had a little, I, not a pond, I would just say a, a watery area in a pit near our home where we would go down and skate also. Randy Miller that was drafted by Boston or signed with the Boston Bruins and left Windsor in the late 50s, uh, lived beside us, the Miller family, and we would go down in the pit, and I was just a toddler, but they would take me down there too and let me play with them. So it's just the way it was growing up. Windsor was special. You learned the game from the elders, the Bill Foley's, et cetera, that were there. They did certain things on the ice, and they would share it with you. Well, do it this way. Do it that way. Get your, get your head up. or you know. So it was a learning curve. Great place to be. Where did the love come for it? You know, I, you know, myself, I kind of got babysat in Quebec. My grandparents are from there, and I skated on the outdoor rinks, and mm -hmm. that was where my love came for it, just playing outdoors and with random strangers and just having fun. Like, what was the one moment you go, oh, I love this. This game could be special to me. Do you remember that moment for you? I was able to be with my dad. Oh, your dad, okay. You see, so that was basically the key there. That was one. Two was just the excitement of being able to skate and use a stick to play with a puck, uh, learning how to skate properly, things like that. I was always excited by that in learning because my dad was more of a teacher of the game. So he had very young age. My first memories are from playing hockey or learning to skate or sitting in the living room, having to dissect a game with my dad, sitting on his knee. Uh, you asked me any question, what do you remember that? I'll tell him, sitting on my dad's knee watching a hockey game and being, it was late. And I remember my mother saying, you need to let the boy go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> At least he let you stay up and watch. Most parents are like, no, I go to bed. Um, he got up to watch. Oh, as long as it was sports, my dad 
He made sure we stayed up. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we all had that advantage. Were you a two-sport athlete or just hockey all the way? Multi. Yeah? Uh, my dad was an outstanding baseball player also, and he played hockey. But uh, at an early age, I was taught to throw, catch, bat. Uh, Hand-eye. Yeah. Good so stuff. all of the, yes, all of the cerebral stuff, and plus eye-to-hand or hand-to-eye coordination. Yeah. So we had that. And I probably was a better ball player than I was a hockey player be. And with illness, so uh, that's how I found out I was ill. When I wasn't able to feel the ball or hit the ball, which was easy for me before, I can remember one summer and, uh, gee, it's not going well. I just can't feel the ball well. I can't throw it. And I left it there because the season was finished and I was going to, uh, had to get to Montreal for to play with the Masonette Braves, but... Uh, no, that's uh, I, I still remember that distinctly. Whereas I had I was like a vacuum cleaner with my gloves. So, and but the vacuum cleaner disappeared. <laughs> so, <laughs> that would be it. Well, that's good stuff. Mm-hmm. What what were you ill with? Sorry, like what what I had a, a Crohn's disease okay. and colitis. You have them both. It's very rare. You see, and I had well lymphoid. You know that. So yeah, yeah. cancer. So. Oh. The, and they discovered that it was simply by uh, the biopsies afterwards because I was losing a, uh, a lot of blood and consciousness and I had uh, the glands. Your glands were swelling, et cetera, and so forth. But at the beginning, they thought it was just the flu. Uh, yeah. You know, and I played hockey with it as a 18, 17. They say I was ill from the age of probably 15. And oh. we was really discovered at 20, so... Uh, and I was in Tennessee, so Knoxville, playing in the Eastern Hockey League. So that's crazy. You're battling for a pro hockey career, and you're battling an illness too, not even really knowing it. That's yeah, nuts. Not not knowing it, but you know, it, illness just brings you an opportunity for something else, if you uh, look at it the right way and you have the proper support around you, which I was fortunate. I had proper support, a wife, and uh, plus I had uh, people within the community in Saint Joseph de Sarel. Uh, sports recreation director came up to me one day and he said, I know you can't play anymore and you're very ill, but we're looking for a coach. And I told him, I said, well, there's no black coaches. I said, you're setting yourself up for a problem. He said, I'm not looking for a black coach. I'm looking for a coach. (laughs) So that's where it started. Charlemagne Pelican, St. Joseph de Sorel. That was in 68, 69. I was coaching juniors. Uh, Sorrell Blackhawks farm team but that's how it started well what point of your playing career did it click into you go okay John maybe the coaching side of you could come naturally what what, what was it about your your I guess charisma in the dressing room that you got a reaction out of people like what, what was it when I was on the ice surface I I communicated and it was something I'd learned from my dad and from watching others and this was what we did on the ponds the, the older players would talk to you for instance, if we were playing very young and we were moved up because you knew you were pretty good when the older players would say, okay, you can join us. Until then, you, you, you had to stay in the sidelines and wait until they finished. But they would say, well, hey, 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 go there. Do this. Do that. I can still remember that very clearly. And I always did it. My dad would do it, would talk to us, and uh, he would ask me, so, what did you say? Well, I didn't say anything, Dad. He said, excuse me? He said, you're not helping me. And I said, what do you mean? I'm not helping you, Dad. And, I said, and he would say, you have to be my eyes and ears also. 
He said, direct, direct. He said, just like you do an orchestra. And I said, okay, what's an orchestra? <laughs> <laughs> so he laughed. So he had to explain that. But that's how it all started. It's, it's not, I cannot take credit for it. It's something that other people brought to me, including my dad. And I sort of grew with it and stayed with that. And that's been John Paris Jr. That's the way I... I would play if I were playing with you today and you're playing on the wing and I have the puck, I, I would tell you, uh, I won't say get there. I'll say go left. I said there's pressure on you from the inside. Slow down. Step inside. Go outside. I'm chipping it, you know. So you're a big communications guy. Yeah. Well, that's most most athletes are. If you watch Sid the Kid or McKinnon, they direct traffic. And this is what, this is what Scotians do. I know, but I'm saying it's tough to like teach that to players like communication i agree is a huge part of the game yeah. you need to be aware of your surroundings 365 24 7 mm -hmm. yada yada but to be a coach and to preach that to your players it's tough because most people don't i shouldn't say most people but some hockey players don't have the gift of gab to be able to speak yell confidently True. and go hey hey hey, go to the net i'm going high you yeah. know i don't know to, yeah. but to be able to preach that and go yeah do it it's it's a gift uh, well yeah well thank you but uh, the players pick up on it i, I turned it into a game and with younger players, I would say, you want more ice time? And they would say, yes, you know how it is. Yeah, yeah. And I'd say, well, talk. Yeah. Help your teammate. Communicate. And then we'd, we'd, we'd go into a little classroom, and I'd explain it to them, and we'd go back to the ice. And they I would hear them talking, kids. And they would say, yeah, I'm going to get more ice time than you because I'm going to talk like the coach wants me to. <laughs> These are little eight-year-olds at that time. Yeah. So they did it. And I learned from them, actually. You learn as you grow. And you watch them. You listen to them. And if you pay attention, it's surprising how much we can learn just from a kid. Just from them. They're, they do not realize that they're schooling us adults. <laughs> but they are. If we pay attention, they're, they're like sponges. Yeah. yeah. I don't talk to, you know, I, I don't have any children myself. But every time I'm around them, you're right. It's true. Yeah. Sponges, sponge. everything you say. Yeah. And they'll come out with something that you never thought of. Uh, and then you'll apply it. and Or you may be in a situation in a game and you think back, well, what do I do? And then bang, light bulb comes on. Mm. I remember back and well, maybe 20 years ago, this kid did this or said this. And you, you might make the difference between winning or losing a hockey game. I was always interested in like back in the day of navigating your way through hockey without, you know, we, we have the internet now, we have Instagram, mm -hmm. you can DM. All you had was a telephone and I think just a telephone. Well, I had tele it, telephone and voices. Voicemail. No, well, voices, no, sure. Voices. I could but, talk. I would talk to other coaches, talk to other players. But did you represent yourself navigating, like, you know, be going to Atlanta? Like, where's mm -hmm. that connection? How is that connection made as you maneuver your way through pro hockey? Atlanta from Windsor, like you got to well, admit. Basically, that's from developing players, helping develop players, because there's a multitude of people that are involved, and every player that's successful has had a a route that they followed, and they've had different people come along at different moments to help them become better. So I've coached players that uh, was part of the helping them become better uh, at what they were doing, and maybe to reach their aspirations. Then you need to win. If you've won something, you, you, you have to win something that, unfortunately, without any ego, it has to be prestigious, a high level. To, uh, that's attention draw. The most important factor, though, are the players. The players will make the difference because a player may be sitting there and maybe they're not doing well the team. General manager comes in or, or the vice president or the owner and they're talking 
And then the player will say, well, I know this coach, and he's good, and I would like to have him. Maybe we should get him. And players get you jobs. They vouch for you. They vouch for you. That's who opens the doors. And a lot of coaches do not understand that. So you don't burn your bridges with your players. So sometimes when every player is not always uh, on board with things, he may be difficult at times to deal with. But you can't let that get to you because that same player may be the one to get you to a higher level because of the way you treated him and the way that the respect you showed and that they've learned from you. So if you take it the other way and go negative with that player, uh, you're not going to gain anything. So you, your role is to always help better prepare the player development-wise, have him understand his role, how to find a seat in the dressing room. Where's the seat you're going to have? What role are you going to fulfill? They will remember, and they will get you there. But, of course, you have to win. I mean, would you hire somebody, a loser, for your team at a high level, or would you hire a winner that knows how to win? Yeah, a winner. Yeah. So that's and players get you there. You can't win by yourself. Yeah. So I've never won by myself. So, and I've always been well surrounded. Then you have to have that. You have to be well surrounded by the your supporting staff, and they have to fulfill the roles that you maybe you're not as on top of. For example, you may be a great bench coach, but maybe not a good teacher. So you want a good teacher beside you. So you better find somebody that's very strong in the teaching department that'll make you better as a coach, make the players better, everybody gains, mm -hmm. and, and you gain. The, the day of the coach doing it all themselves or the egos out there where they think they can, that's only good when you do not want a job. When you don't want a job and you go to an interview, you can say, you know what to say, uh, that they will not take you. I got you. So you use it. Then. Yeah. But when you want the job, you know what to say, too. Yeah, I hear you. You know. Well, if you, uh, quick. So if you have people surrounding you vouching for you, you're a winner. You've done it at this level. Mm -hmm. First black coach to coach professional hockey. Was there people going against you saying, no, we can't have this guy behind the bench? I've. How would I say that? I've had one gentleman, I will not name him, say that he didn't want to be the first one to have a black coach. He said he said it, and but he was honest enough to tell me to my face. He said, I, I'd hire you if you weren't black. He said, but, he said, it's not because you're black. And I said, well, I don't understand. You Took his parking pass or something? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I said, uh, but, the uh, and he explained it to me. He said, you can come to my house. You can date my daughter. But he said, I, I don't want to be the one, I don't want that pressure of, of being, having that, black coach be the first one he said because I don't think I can handle it he said I, I it's going to cause me problems I'll have trouble sleeping I don't agree with uh, that thought process so rather than have that problem I would you mind he said if, I, if we don't go there and I said well I respect you telling me at least and I said we're fine we're still friends today I'm not going no to way him. yeah well, how do you deal with it? Do you, is it just like another, eh, whatever, I'm just going to keep doing yeah. what I do? Is it, it whatever to you? It was fine. Yeah. Because you, I always had a job. Because media is going to ask you questions. You're like the, the pressure would be ramped up on you. Like, how do you feel, John? How do you feel about this? You know, you didn't care? No. I, I'm, uh, I've always said it. I'm a coach by choice, black by nature. Yeah. So what you see is what you have. And uh, I've never really saw myself as anything other. So you can say what you want, do what you want. I'm behind the bench. I'm in the dressing room. Uh, your words are not going to affect me. It'll motivate me. No way. 
It'll motivate me, but... Uh, was there a trick that was learned in your life through that point? I'd rather take it from a negative and turn it yeah, to a positive? Mother. Your my mother? mother and father. Yeah, my mother had, we call them kitchen table lectures. And <laughs> <laughs> in, in black families, and then I can imagine Caucasian families also, but in black families, it's a known factor that the women get you to the table and they talk to you. And the mothers or the grandmother or the aunts, uh, because everybody had uh, a responsibility to bring the child up. So my mother would set us at the kitchen table and educate us. My father would also say, John, he said, if you let things like that bother you, you shouldn't be there. So why would you be there? Why would you expect them to give you a special treatment? He says, you, it happens to be your racial background, which is physical, my pigmentation. He said, then you have an ethnic problem. He said, he would later on, because later I can remember sitting with him in the car and he's visiting me. And he said, you know, you have a double whammy. And I said, well, what do you mean, Dad? He said, well, first, he said, you have a racial problem. He said, that's physical pigmentation. And then he said, it's your ethnic background, too. He said, your, your cultural ca characteristics, which is language, et cetera, because I toiled in French society, so oh, yeah. I spoke French. And Oh, yes. and Paris, uh, yeah. But no, I it was in Quebec where I was coaching, and that's where I started. I started coaching in Quebec, kids. And, uh, okay. I played hockey and, and, and lived in home in Nova Scotia. Okay. But I went away for hockey. So uh, I had a double whammy. And then he said, and then you have a third one. He said, you're short. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and then he turned around and he said, look at the guy across the street. And I said, yeah. He said, what do you think of him? I said, he's a big man. He said, that's the first thing you notice, right? He was a big man. So he said, what do you think they're going to notice about you when they see you? It's not going to be that you're a little man. They're going to see a black man. And uh, he said, you're proud of that? And I said, yeah, I'm proud of that. I said, I don't have a problem with that. He said, okay. So he said, we understand each other. He said, you coach. And he said, the rest of it doesn't matter. He said, it only matters if somebody refuses to give you an employment because of that, to hire you. And he says, you're going to encounter that. So he said, somebody else will. And you know, right to today, I've always had opportunities, job offers. Uh, actually, today, I'm 76 years old, and I'm still involved in the game. Today's and, your birthday? No, but oh, I'm sorry. 76. Uh, hey, uh, my oh, birthday, sorry. I thought you said today. August. I'll okay, be 77 sorry. in August. Okay. But, uh, at 76, I'm still involved in the game. I'm probably better at the game now than I've ever been, but I'm still studying it. I'm still learning. I'm a sponge. However, if we go back and we look, if I had just simply been worried about skin tone and people calling me names and racial epithets and things like that, no, where would I be today? I mean, either I had a choice. Either take that negativity and turn it into a positive and learn more prepare myself more. Uh, by that, I mean educating myself in the game, watching the coaches, seeing what they were doing, but more so what they were not doing, and then apply. It, apply to that and try to keep myself going and stay up to date. I was 18 consecutive years, and this many people aren't aware of because I've never really brought it up and never thought about it until Garrett uh, had mentioned it to me uh, asking me about longevity with teams. And I said, well, I've never, you know, I'm like all coaches. You're hired to be fired. And then a light switch went on. The United States Junior Prep Development Program, uh, Mike Gempler, Denver, University of Denver, and the University of Colorado and Boulder 
I was 18 consecutive years. Worked for him every summer as his lead instructor. Never had a contract. Received bonuses, full salaries, everything. I mean, spoiled. 18 consecutive years. So I must have been doing something right. I just never thought of it at the time. And Mike said you... Players came because you were teaching them. They were becoming better at their sport. And I never looked at it that way. I've always looked at it as development is just normal that you do teach. You know, I never thought it was something special. That's what I do. Do you look to develop outside of the game as well? Personalities? Like yes. development? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I function with individuals. Like if I'm talking to you, I'm talking to you. You're an individual. You're important. Not a forward. I'm a person. You're, you're a person. I got you. You're I got you. I got you. So, and I'm going to do that. The same way I'll find a way if you have a problem in your performance. I always thought that I have to find a way to help you. So let's say you have a, a structural problem with your bone structure, your skeleton. Well, I'm not a skeleton expert. So I would go out and find like Dr. Sylvain Guimond, who worked with Tiger Woods, Mario Lemieux, and at Montreal Canadiens and many NFL, NHL teams. And I went and I said, hey, I, in 1987, 86, I said, look, I need you to do a biomechanical study on all of the players. Well, in those days, that was unheard of and very expensive too. But he didn't charge me anything hardly. And uh, he did it, and, but he asked me why. And I said, I want to know the mechanical movement of the player because – if I'm going to try to improve him and help him to become better, I have to not do like the other coaches are doing. And they would school all the players in the same way, educate them in the same way. If you were a winger or you're learning to shoot a puck or pass a puck, everything was done the same way, and it still is. I didn't believe in that. I've always felt that every player is different and that it was my responsibility to find the strength to help improve it. So if your inclination might have been so that you couldn't make that pass the same way everybody else, but maybe you could turn your body a little where it's comfortable, I would let you do it. Hmm. I said, that's where you're comfortable. You can make that play easily, or you can see the play because you couldn't turn your head a certain way. Because I said, this is what you do. That's why I had that study done. He became a very good friend of mine. And actually, later in life, he sent me his son, sent his son from Sorelda, Colorado, for me to coach and train. And that was a great, that's a compliment uh, that I took. And I was very, I'm very proud of that. Dr. Guimond did that. He didn't have to. But we won the Air Canada Cup, and that's how we won it. Every player was treated as an individual, and they all played according to the inclination of their body, their lecture, their strengths. I put them in areas where they could be successful. Let's just put it that way. Wow, I've never heard of that, going that down deep into a research of a player and their like bone structure and how wow. they're comfortable holding the puck. That's, mm-hmm. that's, I've never heard of that. That's they, unbelievable. They said I was voodoo, African voodoo. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was actually accused of that. And I laughed. I just chuckled and because it was what, how would I say that? If you're different, regardless, let's say your hair is not, uh, I have no hair, you have hair. It's thinning. I don't like you, you have hair. (laughs) So now I have to find a way to have people like you. And to have people like you, well, maybe maybe your hair, the way you combed it, there's a couple of little strands of your hair weren't combed right. But that's because of the way the hair was growing. So then I tell somebody, well, that's the way his hair is growing. Did you see, look, 
Look at the way the hair. Look at how it comes up. Oh, yeah. Oh, I understand now. Then they like you. So what I did with hockey, I applied that thought process where with an improvement thought process. I know it's a little bit weird the way I'm explaining it, but I just took the uh, areas where the player was able to perform within, and I worked on that. Yeah. You pointed out the differences and yes. what made people understand, and if yes. people understand something, they like it. People yeah, don't yeah. like things they don't understand. That makes sense. Exactly. So it's not rocket science. I'm not a genius. but no, You found a way, and you made it work. Uh, that's what my mother told me. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah. Uh, the game of hockey, unbelievable. You get to see uh, certain parts of the world that you would never get to see before. You said you were in Denver for 18 years running that camp. 18 Eight, summers. 18 summers, excuse yes. me. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. That's just one location. What's another place in the world that you've been to that you're like, wow, I never thought hockey would bring me here? And what was your experience All like right. there? Russia, Switzerland, Finland, Sweden. Where do you want to go? I want to go to Russia. <laughs> England. I want to, what was Russia uh, like? Uh, poor. Okay. Maybe let's go. <laughs> poor. You couldn't go anywhere. So you, you wouldn't have enjoyed it. Uh, I didn't enjoy it. And there's very few black people in Russia. <laughs> so it didn't go that well in Russia. No, <laughs> okay. No, but uh, to make a long story short, the uh, I, I was disappointed with nobody. We weren't schooled that Russia was, I never, uh, you know, in, in Russian uh, culture or history. I was, I didn't have knowledge of it. And, I thought it would be, you know, like very high end, et cetera, but very poor. I I saw people living in apartments and having one toilet on one floor, and everybody used that same toilet. Yeah. The apartment building. So that means multiple families. I saw that. And I, it, for me, it was mind-boggling, and it, I wasn't happy to see that because I didn't think humans should be living have to live like that so what we see sometimes is not exactly on television or what they tell us is not exactly how it always is mm. it's the same way in africa if you go to africa they make cities uh highly educated people and you have the contrary to it's the same as everywhere you just have to have the opportunity to go so i've been fortunate i've been to the lord mariner's dinner in england with the queen and the, no way yes and i, I now I can tell you a story on that. I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> the uh, Captain Coons, a gentleman, said, you need a suit. And then he said, no, a tuxedo. I said, well, I, I do not have a tuxedo. He said, well, we're going to rent one. So we go downtown London. And London really itself is only one square mile, people. Never been. Yeah, but it's one square mile that really originated. But it's like what London that we see today uh, you know how humongous it is. but So we rented a tuxedo. I go to this, and they have a CD. My name's there, Lord Admiral Pringle. The queen comes in and all. So and all the protocol and three or four course meal and everything. And I call my aunt. And uh, <laughs> bless her soul. She said, what did you do? I said, well, I was at some dinner. <laughs> and she said, <laughs> Oh, some dinner. Yeah, they made me go out and rent a tuxedo. She said, they did? And then she said, well, where was it? I said, Lord Mariner's Dinner in London. And uh, she said, well, do you know where you were? And I said, no. It was kind of long. I said. <laughs> and she said, John. She said, you don't know what the Lord Mariner's Dinner. I said, no. She said, are you sure you were there? I said, well, I had the Shema to show you, and you'll see my name beside Lord Admiral Pringle and all of them, John Paris Jr., and they 
they named me. So I bought it home to her when I came home. Wow. And uh, she she said, don't ever tell anybody that you didn't know that. <laughs> so I'm telling them. She's up in heaven right now laughing at yeah. you. What are you doing, John? Yeah. But that's, that's stories like that. I, I've had a lot of them that have happened. Uh, Pro uh, hockey. It yeah, gets you in the door. It gets you in the door. Well, I had coached a team in England of uh, youth. So they were at a tournament in uh, – Pentington, British Columbia, and they, had, they they would have an international tournament there. So they had a team from England, Basingstoke, uh, from Basingstoke, England. And on that team, so Andy Oakes had said, well, you're going to coach Team England. He said, would you mind doing that? So a couple of the guys were chuckling, and I said, well, they must know something I do not know. But Andy said, don't worry. He said, you practice every day for two weeks, you'll play. You could, I said, can I have a classroom? He said, yes. So I had classroom sessions, et cetera, and so forth. Well, we won the tournament and never lost the game with a bunch of kids from England. And I think that was part of it. And a gentleman that was the vice president of Swiss Airlines, uh, one day I received a ticket, an airline ticket, to, <laughs> so to go to England. Wow. Yeah, so that's how it all evolved. It's from hockey, where I would be running camps over there where – you know, people would hire me to go over to uh, for two weeks. That's uh, awesome. Things like that. So I, I was fortunate on that side and uh, really enjoyed it, really, because I learned. I was learning uh, because it's different. The hockey was different. It was more based on skills, uh, skill development over there, and the ice surfaces were larger. And I was able to exchange with the other coaches and never had that problem. And they would steal from me, and I would steal <laughs> from them. So – all good, and a lot of them are friends. We're still friends today, but like I said, it's uh, I mainly toiled in Quebec and uh, in the USA, you know, as uh, over the majority of time. And when you've toiled in Quebec, for example, you're from Quebec. I My dad is. Your dad is, yeah. so he would know. We're not exactly uh, if you're Quebecers are not exactly looked at. Uh, maybe always favorable by, by a huge proportion of our population. So in the hockey world, if in the Canadian Junior Major Hockey League, if you're coaching in Quebec, you never receive the same recognition as those coaching in or playing in Ontario, per se. And that's the same whether it's a Caucasian community or the black community. It is what it is. It is what it is, so... What what was it like? I, I, before you got here this morning, I was looking at photos of you coaching in Atlanta, and I couldn't mm -hmm. believe the crowds behind you. Yeah. And what, what was what was the hockey culture like in huge. Atlanta? It was huge. Like the the crowds were unbelievable. Yes, they were, and they were animated. We had a, a Mr. Sir Slapshot, a mascot, <laughs> and uh, Dave Donnie Jackson that played with the Oilers back in the heyday of the Oilers was coaching uh, one of the teams in the eye because we were farm teams of the, we were the top farm teams of the NHL teams. So Donnie's coaching and Mr. Sir Slapshot comes down and jumps on the glass and sort of the glass uh, hit Don's, Coach <laughs> Don's back. Coach jumps over the glass, beats up Sir Slapshot. <laughs> so we've got 14,000, 15,000 people in the stands trying to get to Donnie Jackson. And that made ESPN and all. I still remember the game. But Donnie had came off a car accident the summer previously. And 
so he didn't appreciate Sir Slapshot. Oh. But when you coached in Atlanta under those conditions when we were there, it was special. It was you have to live that to really understand it. It was like like a dream. It was like, is this for real? Uh, just a fan for people. Uh, they knew who you, in America, they may turn you into a known person, public person through the o- media overnight. Okay, uh, it's different than than you know other countries. The media is very strong. You know that, and you can be a hero on Monday and a bum on Tuesday, mm. right? So very quickly. So you can't climb too high up that tree. Because Lord will shake it, you're gonna fall down. When did you learn that lesson? Oh, I learned that young. Did you? Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Learned that lesson young. Yeah. You don't climb too high. Don't get too high or too low. But always remember where you come from and who you are, and uh, don't try to be somebody you're not because that somebody else is not you. Yeah. So enjoy the moment, but remember those that helped you get there, and you know you share your joys, and you hide your pain. I like that <laughs> lesson. Know. Yeah. yeah. Winning the Turner Cup in 1994 to win a championship, you got to go through some pain. And there's always a special group that come together to win a championship. It doesn't matter what level. Do you remember anything about that year? Yeah, I I can remember the. Uh, I can remember one evening uh, we're playing in Milwaukee. I believe uh, players are tired, so between the second and third period, I told the players, I said, "We're turning the lights off." And. I said, I want you to lay down, loosen your skates, put your feet up on your stalls, and and I said, just relax. So I told the trainer, I asked him politely, I said, Kirk, please turn the lights off. And I said, we're going in. I don't want to hear a sound in here. I said, yeah, I want you all to relax. You have your drink of water, et cetera. This is intermission? Intermission. Okay. So we were losing at the time. We won the game. Third period, we came out. They were refreshed. I had one distracted them from their fatigue. I made them think that they weren't tired anymore by turning the lights off and letting them rest a while. They knew it, but uh, a couple of them said, uh, Coach, you played with our minds. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that was one. And another one was I received, a, I had a whole box and multitude of messages, hate mail and death threats. Uh, and uh, what was weird about it, it wasn't from Georgia. It was from northern states and uh, places that you wouldn't even think of. Because uh, a lot of people think that the South, which we know has had a huge racial uh, history, but the United States itself has one. So, But it wasn't from Southerners at that time. That was later. Uh, this, the uh, administrative assistant of the uh, one of the co-owners, I just said, hey, I said, uh, look, I got this, I had this box here, and I said, my voicemail, and I said, so she deleted everything on the voicemail. She grabbed the box, and she looked at me, and she said, this is going to the garbage. It's where it needs to go. You coach. You coach your game. You go out there and win. She said, you need any more motivation than that? She said, you go out. She said, do you want me to come down and stand beside you on the bench just to be your bodyguard? And I smiled. I laughed. And I said, thank you, ma'am. And we've been friends ever since. Uh, wow. The, uh, but she did that. She was a Caucasian lady. And uh, the way that she handled it, uh, it's, it's, uh, it was a lesson for me. So, And she handled it in the right way. She didn't become angry with that. She said, 
that's garbage. She says, you didn't even look at them. You didn't look at any of them. No. no. So, and I had reporters always ask me, why didn't you keep the hate? I said, why would I keep hate mail? Why would I keep something? I don't have to prove things to anybody. I lived it. So, and I know what, what my family's lived it. I said, so we, we don't need nothing new. Nothing new. We're not, I'm not going to say that. But I have to say this. The majority of people are good people. Uh, for example, look, um, you're talking to me today because of Hockey Nova Scotia and Garrett McDonald, et cetera, and so forth. People are voting for a project they put forth. Uh, they're Caucasian. There's a strong majority of them who are Caucasian, and I know there's a strong, there's a group, a huge group of blacks also and browns and different shades, and hopefully they'll continue because not for John Parrish Jr., because somebody stood up like Hawking Nova Scotia and Garrett, et cetera, and so forth, and are, are doing something that they feel is right. So they're going outside the box. If they're going outside the box, then they deserve to be supported. Not John Paris Jr., but the group that, because they didn't have to do this. No, there was no, because if they had to talk to me about it, I only found out 40 or 45 minutes before they announced it, I probably would have said no. Uh, or would have been they would have had to convince me because I never really thought of something like that. Uh, I've already been inducted in the Nova Scotia Hall of Fame, Sports Hall of Fame, and that that was huge for me, and I was very very proud of that. So for me, I never had any other ambition. Uh, you know, it just fell out of the sky. But for somebody to step up and do that that did not know me, it's huge. So that just goes to show you that. In life, if you try to do the right thing, we're not perfect. So, but if we try to do the right thing, always sooner or later there's a return. It may not be for you; it may be for somebody else in your family or somebody, you know. But in my case, that suffices for me. What they're doing, and if they're doing that, then people should learn a lesson from it. All of the people that are in the Hockey Hall of Fame, I'm very happy for them. It's the same thing if you buy a new house and you're happy with it. I'm happy for you and your family. I have no no uh, jealousy or I'm not, my ego is not towards what you have. I'm happy what you have. And if what you don't have, if I can help you have it, I'll help you. And I think everybody should do the same thing. And if we did that, the world would be a better place to live in. Not on, and sports is a good place to start because it's easy to integrate in sports because the simulation, the, the, the exchange between players. If you go to a new town, a new area, if you're playing in a new community, if you play sports and you're young, you're automatically easier accepted. Mm -hmm. It's all things like that. And we, we talk about that. Uh, you asked me a question while we're on it about you know, the racial side of it. And I talk about resistance. I want to, uh, the walls of resistance to fall down. And to be accepted by everybody should be. For example, if I go to the dance and you invite me to the dance and then you let me in the door and I talk to everybody, but if nobody's dancing with me, I haven't been accepted. <laughs> so that's what I would like to see. If you, if, you, if you invite people in and then accept them the way they are, regardless of it doesn't have to be pigmentation, it doesn't have to be racial, it could be gender, it could be anything. Everybody deserves a certain amount of respect. Nobody's perfect. Nobody should pretend to be. And put the darn ego aside. And mm. you know, the the haves. Think about the have-nots.
Yeah, I like what you're saying. It's not about John Paris Jr. It's about no. the word acceptance and bringing that to the Hockey Hall of Fame. Exactly. And, and if if that helps other youth to have that ambition because they see somebody else get there, and that gives them a, a motivation to participate in the sport, and they see that there are good people out there, well, there's automatically going to have more people that will participate. And you're going to see more people that will talk about things in a positive way instead of always talking about the negative. Of, I could tell you horror stories, but what, what would that give me and what would it give you? You've heard them. <laughs> you read about them. Uh, you see it on television. It's on the Internet. I don't need to talk about that. I, we need to talk about other things that are more important, in my opinion, and which is let's just break down the walls of resistance. Let's eliminate some of the ignorance. And sports is a good way of doing that. And that should be ownership. It starts by ownership. Because if I own a hockey team and you're working for me and I tell you, I don't care what your thoughts are, you had better do the right thing. You better hire a person by qualifications only. And if you do not and I find out about it, I'm firing you on the spot. If every owner would do that, things would be okay. But unfortunately, every owner doesn't. Mm. People say the National Hockey League is right. National Hockey League is not racist. There are some people who work within, under the National Hockey League umbrella, could be a coach, could be, it could be a ticket salesperson, it could be a GM, doesn't matter. They may be a bigot. We don't know. But the National Hockey League doesn't prone, no way, racism. And we, we're often attacking the wrong animal. Mm. <laughs> Because Gary Bettman, since he's been in the National Hockey League as, as, as the head, and I call him the head parent because that's what he is indirectly, has done things to, to promote the game. Not only the players make more money, they're safer. It's the safety part of it. And diversity. We've never had them talk about diversity like they do as today. So we're making huge steps forward. Those are the things we need to pay attention to. And eventually those few owners or GMs or presidents or people in power that are bigots will eventually understand, well, hey, we're a minority now. We have to stop doing this. There's no excuse to use liking and disliking a person to give them something. Mm. For instance, if I'm on the highway and it's raining outside and you're walking with your daughter and maybe I didn't like some of the things you do, it's still my responsibility to stop and offer you a ride. Yeah, it's a lesson that's been lost, but definitely needs to yeah, be. Yeah, it's what it needs to be. Yeah. But anyway. No, but no, it's, it's a good lesson. It's true. I, it, hockey's given me almost everything I have in this life. There's good mm -hmm. people in it, yeah. really good people in it. I think in every terms of every industry, you're going to have a bad egg. It doesn't yes. matter if you're an accountant, a librarian, mm -hmm. or a hockey player. It's just it is what it is in today's society, but... There's some good, good people in hockey, real good. No, we have proof. Yeah, we have proof all the time. We see it, and there's more, more uh, uh, people playing the game today of all ethnic backgrounds. Mm. Uh, the one area which I'm happy to see is the female, the, the female gender. The uh, women are, are gradually gaining a little more respect. There's still a lot of work to be done. Mm. I know in the black society, uh, when a black woman stands up and's had enough, uh, that's when changes come about. It's not us men. We, we've used, if we look at history, it's always been a black woman that stood up and and uh, made the first say, "I've had enough. That's it." And 
Then the man steps up and forward. Martin Luther King's one. He's a great man, but there was a woman before him that started, Rosa Parks. And it, we have one, uh, uh, De Mrs. Desmond, that was here right in Nova Scotia. So, and whether they're black or white or Asian, whatever, mm. uh, women need to be respected. Absolutely. They need to be respected. And uh, Rule number one, um, looking back on your career, mm -hmm. you know, you talk about stories, you talk about memories, you talk about life lessons, you talk about um, disciplines and getting other people's respect in order to, to, to help your career. Looking back on all of it, and you could maybe put together um, uh, one piece of advice for that individual coming up through pro hockey, not necessarily a coach, but maybe even a player, just mm -hmm. trying to find acceptance within the game. What would your advice be to that you know, mid-20s, younger-20s individual? Find a niche identify where your strengths are because they're going to hire you for your strengths. They're not going to hire you for your weaknesses. So put your attention to your strengths and continue to work on that and apply to it uh, and be able to adjust. For example, everybody's not going to be a top three or a top six. So you may be the go-to person on your hockey team in junior. You're drafted, maybe you were drafted as a goal scorer. Somebody saw you as an offensive uh, force. But you get to the NHL, you're not going to score those 60 goals you may have scored in junior. So now you're going to have to learn to be a role player. Are you willing to accept that? Do, are you able to identify that? Well, hey, I can probably play 10, 12 years, maybe 14 as a role player. Mm. Uh, you know, as a shutdown person, stopping the adversary. If I chip in with a few goals, that's a bonus. If I try to stay, if I, there's an expression that we have. If you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to always receive what you're receiving. So if you keep doing what you're doing and you're not obtaining success or anything to your satisfaction, maybe you need to change what you're doing. And in hockey, that's basically the huge factor. You have to be willing to adjust. You have to be humble enough to understand, say, hey, there's no shame to playing on a fourth line. If I'm making $3 million, $3.3, $4 million, and I'm playing on a fourth line, and I can make that uh, over my career $40 million, maybe $30, $40 million, be nice. I will play in the fourth line. Give me a million dollars. I'll sit on the bench, <laughs> you know, a year. But they have to understand. You just... Uh, Certain players, when you arrive, already have a depth chart. You have to figure out where do you sit on that. Say, where do you fit on that depth chart? Right. Are you top six, mid, bottom? Doesn't matter. No, you just have to figure out. And then when you find out oh, there's an opportunity there, that you grab it. It may be on that fourth line. You better grab it because if you don't, you're going to end up back in the minors and disappear. 99.9% and more never make the National Hockey League, or never play more than 30 games in the show. So I heard the odds are you have to win the lottery twice. Like That's how light hard it is to make the NHL. Oh, it's hard. And, and, hard. and anybody that plays in the NHL, we should lift our hat to because you have 100%. to be darn good to play. You just don't – there's no such thing as, oh, he has a contact or – or he must know somebody. No. Or th that does not. That's a myth. I hate that when yeah. I hear people go, oh, he's yeah. only played two games in the yeah. NHL. Like, only two games only two in the teams? NHL. Yeah. What are you talking how, about? How many's played in it? There, yeah. there are 32 teams, actually. Remember the six-team era? Well, you're too young. 
The 16 error, so you know as well as I do, the 20-man roster, the 23 on the roster, excuse me, and they dress 20. Mm-hmm. Now, if you, if, you, if you have a million players on the and everybody on the planet wasn't playing then. Today, you have more teams, but you have the whole planet. They're playing hockey in China. Everywhere. In Japan, everywhere. So <laughs> your chances of, of making the National Hockey League are so minimal. So if you get there, you have to be smart enough to understand identification. How do I fit in this dressing room? And how can I stay in it? Because that's the key. Because once you come in, you want to stay in. That's why we give them a taste when they're playing in the minors. We bring them up and let them taste the good life. Motivate them a bit. Motivate And then when they go back, they want to come back up, you know. But you'll still find players that do not understand that. And the Worst enemy of parents can be sometimes the love syndrome of the parents. And it starts there. If they ed- educate in the wrong way and they, they don't understand the game or that uh, there's roles, there's ways and means of getting there, but you cannot buy it. You can't go out and say, well, I'm and send them. They, they'll send these kids, oh, maybe multitude of trials, multitude of showcases, et cetera, all thinking that they're going to get better. They're not. They're not. There's another kid that's sitting at home playing another sport or maybe uh, uh, just playing chess, whatever, and playing another sport in the summer. All of a sudden, he comes back in, in August. He's better than he was the previous year. Well, the other kid is stagnant. So the dad or the mom's upset because the child is not making another level. I just spent $2,000 on yeah. a summer camp. Why isn't he on the triple Why isn't he on the triple Yeah. Or yeah. yeah. I know the story. You know the story, yeah. right? So if... They need to understand, and I speak about it a lot, and I'm very adamant on it. You, you have to invest your money in an area where you're going to have a return, and the return has to be a positive return. So if I invest $50 in you, I should make 55 or $60 back. So if I'm not, then there's something I'm doing wrong again. It's helped them be, to be better prepared. Skill factors, for example, they go out and they learn puck management. They do chop suey. Uh, you're not gonna. There's no poise to it. Where's the poise? Uh, who's explaining to the young man or the young lady? Well, look, look at him. Hold the puck. Make him react. When they react, then you do what you want to do. But th- those are things that are, no, they're overlooked. That's where you spend your time. Neural skills. Mm. You go to neural skills. That's the thing today. Nathan Beepop. An outstanding expert in it out of Denver, Colorado. And he works Major League Baseball, NBA, all the sports, hockey. Those are the people you, that's what you do. It's not going to showcases, paying for tryouts. I'll give you a story. There was a dad that had asked me during a seminar in a question, a Q&A period. And he said, my son was at seven tryouts. I said, seven. And he said, I don't understand why he didn't make it. I said, I'll tell you why he didn't make it. I said, one, I, I'm not saying he's not good, but maybe he's not good enough. <laughs> I said, but the major issue is that do you realize every time he goes to a training camp or goes to a showcase that people see the same face every time? They'll, if he couldn't make it at one and he couldn't make it at two and he couldn't make it at three, well, maybe you should be looking at what he's missing. What are they saying that he doesn't have? Instead of just taking your money to pay their assistant coaches, uh, yeah, you know. So and he's oldest said, trick on the block, right? So, but they 
keep doing it, and they'll spend hundred, two hundred thousand dollars over a youth's career, and the youth doesn't receive a D one uh, uh, commitment yeah. or or he doesn't play major junior or he yeah. doesn't make the NHL and. And then you'll hear them blame everybody, blame the coach, blame. But the one you should need to blame is yourself because yeah. you created the monster by yeah. not doing the right things. And I just wish people would pay more attention to that. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be a nice thing for to be taught in today's society with the parents for sure. Yeah. What, Gareth, what's your time like? Like, do you have another thing? You're good for a bit? What? What's the, how much time are we at? 56. What, what's the, uh origin of the last name paris like i obviously i know where paris is but do, do you know how like where how, it's just a unique last name we're working on it but uh ancestry.ca you yeah figured it out. yeah no no i'm, I'm going deeper than that oh too. yeah uh, yes uh but uh it would be uh see I'm, I'm a parish in the states my mother was a states what do you mean a state sorry that was her last name a states oh sorry yes. sorry okay. last name was states and uh uh that would be, uh, well, I could go through the whole family history, but I'm not. We, we're not here for that. <laughs> but Paris would, would be from uh, the West Indies, uh, uh, Barbadian probably. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, I have relatives from Barbados. They don't even know we're relatives, but I know we are. <laughs> and, uh, the, you know, all of us have a most, most of us of Africa have African heritage in there somewhere. So... It would be French, Dutch, African, but the, the name itself, uh, how would I say that? Uh, there's mixture. Okay, I that's fair. I put it that way. That's fair. There's, there's mixture in there. And it is what it is. It is what it is. Uh, you won the Air Canada Cup. Yes. What year? 1987. What? I didn't win it, it. We won it. Sorry, that's my mistake. Mm. You, you guys won it. Yeah. Uh Stories on winning the Air Canada Cup, very prestigious tournament. It's called the Telus Cup now. Mm -hmm. Is it Telus Cup now? Yes, Telus yeah. Cup now. Mm -hmm. um, winning that is that up there in the rankings of most special moments in your career? Oh yeah, is it? Yeah. Where was it when you won it? Ottawa, Gloucester. Ottawa, mm -hmm. and Gloucester. And uh, that during that tournament, Rob Brendamore, Pellerain, uh, Herder, Batters were all on Notre Dame Hounds team. They were power packed. But what was special about it? We were the youngest team in the tournament. And I had five Bantam players on my team. And I was told we'd never win with that. But that's the way I am. I'm going to take the player that I feel is he that deserves, that's earned, that merits to be there and has the potential to get better. And I had five of them on the team. And I put kids, LaRoche, Campo, and Samarito against the, the big trio of uh, Rob Brendamore coaches uh, at Carolina at the moment. But... And you had to beat them more than once. Plus, we never lost a game in the tournament in regular in regular time, which is still a record since night. No, that's never been never to this been, day. To this day, it's still there. Uh, there are teams that have won it and uh, have gone undefeated once. I think another team from the Maritimes, maybe, but they went into overtime. We won all of our games in regulation times, and. Uh, Basically, the the other important factor in that tournament that I found was that the players I had, that we had a, a choreography. We had a, a little show that we would put on at the beginning. You see the Carolina Hurricanes when they, they do that little show. Speaking that, of Robert Brendamore, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, 
we had one in our warm-up, which I did that to distract and take away the tension from the players and distract it, but where they would go through a routine. People would clap for it. It was just like putting on a mini show. What was the routine? What was it? Well, it would be it would be like you were going to, uh, how would I say that? The Rockettes. Uh, uh, you were going to see a play, but we would play it out on the ice. They would turn. They would circle. They would. All the warm up was designed was designed as a showcase. The whole warm up. And then they'd go into the second part of the warm up. The first part of the warm up, excuse me, was a showcase, a choreography. I know I'm saying it in French, I guess, <laughs> but uh, uh, what it all it did was showcase certain elements of of a spectacle of a show where you would go out, say I'd have one player in front, he would direct, he would direct the orchestra, as we say, and they would they would do multiple different uh, vari uh, variations of movements. Like instead of stretching, they would roll all in sequence. Their <laughs> uh, their puck handling, et cetera, all in sequence. Everything was done in sequence. It was, uh, it was uniform. The, and they were so good at it that, uh, you know, <laughs> people would clap to see it. And they, I, we did that so that it would distract one, the other team, entertain the fans, and take away the pressure, any, any nervousness that our players had. That's why I did it. And it was like a show. And Carolina does it now. now I wonder if that's where Roger, I wonder if that's where he got it from, Brenda Moore. I wonder if he had admit it, but I know he saw it. And, uh, <laughs> I know he saw it. Yeah. And some people said it was kind of like, oh, well, we don't do that in hockey. It's kept it. Well, they're doing it today. How funny is that? Full yeah, circle. You do it. Hockey. Yeah, they're doing it today. It's like when they were doing, when Price and Subban were doing their yeah. show and the coach made them stop doing it. I never would have made them stop doing it. Yeah. It's part of the entertainment. Having fun. It's having fun. And this is where uh, sometimes we take ourselves too seriously when. Uh, People are paying to see uh, entertainment. They're paying to be entertained. And we're part of entertainment. When you're in sports, it's the same as going to the movies. You're, 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 you're in the entertainment you're, business. You're, you're in the entertainment business. You're a public person. So as they can holler at you, scream at you, all they want. Yeah. But you still should have the right to entertain them. Yeah. And why would you consider that as... Yeah. And the other part of it that I, I really enjoyed was the way the players were so happy. I, you know, when you see young people, they don't hold back. There, there's no shyness. So that part of it, and the other part was because I knew there had never been a black man that had done that before. That I did know. Was there any part like this Paris guy? He's a little nutty. What's he making these players do this for? Like, was there any oh, of yeah. that? Like, yes. and what did you do? You're just yeah. like, eh, well, I am nutty. Yeah, you just went with it. Yeah, like you just I would tell the players, I said, guys. We're winning, aren't we? <laughs> or you're improved. You, you were drafted, were you not? And for me, it never bothered me. It was always what was would benefit the team, the players. In sports, I guess I can explain it this way. When you're coaching or a GM, your responsibility is to the players, to management, to the ownership, to the, uh, to the town that you, or the city where mm -hmm. you're coaching. Mm -hmm. you're you, you have to maintain and to the league that you're in. Those are the four, that's the criteria. It's in four facets. So I've always lived by that code, and that's 
part of it was entertainment, and I felt that everybody's like an individual. If you enjoy doing something and you're entertaining someone and it's sane and it's not harming anyone, there's nothing the matter with it. Everybody benefits from it. If it makes somebody smile, or if it makes give it gives somebody a conversation piece to say, well, I don't like, well, fine. But the majority of people enjoy seeing people that are allowed to express themselves. I like the way you look at the world, John. You're good people. Oh, that's that's it's different. You don't hear that every day. It's kept me in the game. Today, I'm actually uh, what I do. An NHL agency or an agent will call me, and they'll have a player that's having a problem at the NHL level. No way. And I will talk to that player or go visit that player. I will not name that player to you because we do not do that simply for two reasons. One, players do not like to be public to know that they're uh, having a problem. Mm -hmm. Two, you have to respect the player, the team, the coaching staff, and uh, the agency. So you do what you're supposed to do. You keep your mouth shut. You don't need media or anyone involved in it. And that's why we don't make it public. But that's what I do. So if you're having a problem, and, and my specialty is game performance. I'm in the game performance factors. For, for example, we'll take uh, peripheral vision, for example, awareness. A lot of, th in the sports world, we know this. You don't have to be the fastest skater or the strongest, but if you have awareness and you're intelligent and you see the ice and you understand the game and you can use poise, if you understand the importance of poise. They used to say in the old days, if things weren't going well, well, work harder. And I've always said, no, work smarter. Slow it down, work smarter, and look around you. Be aware. You've always said that? I always said it. I always said that's because that's a new saying. People say that recently. I've said that, yeah. said that. We, uh, I've said that. Heck yes, I've always said that. That's kitchen table. It's... It's common sense. It's, I, I've had. I'm 76 years old. I knew that as a 10 year old, yeah. but it wasn't taught that way. So at times people would say, "Well, what's he doing?" Or yeah. we, I guess the year we won the Air Canada Cup, and I'll tell you another reason why it was important. All the innovations that we were going through, ballet, jazz. Uh, oh, there's a lot more that we're doing. Biomechanical studies. The analytics that we had back then were, uh, I had seven statisticians and it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough because I had to, I, I wanted the time on the, anything that we could get. We didn't have computers. Say back then it was all by hand. And today they have the computers and they're, they're so advanced with it, but we were doing it by hand. And they were complaining that the management, they said, why do you have so many people taking stats? I said, well, I need to know who's performing under what conditions, et cetera, et cetera. We lost the first nine games, exhibition games. We played nine. We would be 11-2, 9-0, 10-zip. People were saying, ah, he's not even going to see opening day. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I knew with what we had, and I told the youths, I said, young men, I said, just trust me. I said, we're learning. You're not hockey players, you're students. Mm -hmm. I said, so let's, let's, let's apply to this. Trust me, we'll get there. We lost only eight games in the whole year in playoffs wow. after that. So I did get to the, uh, that's the opening day. So that's why that Air Canada Cup, because nobody thought that a five foot four and a half, now don't forget my half inch. I'm not forgetting. 
135 pounds from Windsor, Nova Scotia, black, would coach a hockey team, an elite hockey team, to a prestigious tournament and win. Uh, they helped me win that. I helped them win. But we had a multitude of other people helping me too, like I said. But it was something that was unheard of. When I used to tell people, we're going to win the uh, Canada Cup, we're going to win this league, they would laugh at me. Oh, yeah. And they would say, look at that little N. I won't say the word. He's crazy. He said, you know what those N's are like. And I would just smile and say, we will win. And we did. So that's why it was so big to me, because I knew how important it was. If you arrive to a final, to the finals, and you, nobody's ever accomplished it, and you fail, you create a negative that can stick a long time. When we won the Turner Cup, Mr. Berkman, that owned, was a majority owner. It was Richard Adler, a very good friend of mine. He's from Montreal. Uh, Charles Felix, he's from uh, New York. And there was Mr. Berkman, a billionaire out of Atlanta. <whistles> I was hired by the Atlanta Knights, not by Tampa Bay, by the Atlanta Knights. When we won, uh, they're having a big meal at the house and they're celebrating me and the players and Mr. Berkman said uh, gee John he said thank you he said you won and I said no thank you we won he said no you don't understand and I said Mr. Berkman you never use don't <laughs> he said I want to make a point he said do you realize he said you had to win I said, no, we had to win. He said, no, you had to win. And then I said, well, why? And he said, you know, you're black. You're first. You lose. When do you think there'll be another one? No. And you're in the deep south. He said, you had to win. And he said, at any opportunity. And I realized then the importance of that. But the big one was the Air Canada Cup because it set the tone. Yeah, it made, it made your name a little it, bit. It, it got a buzz going. Yeah. It got the buzz going. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, it's no longer the black coach. It was no longer the black coach or the Negro coach or whatever. It's the, the guy who can coach. win. It was John, hey, Paris. It was John Paris. It was John Paris. Now, we both know that we come from the Maritimes. We all know that, right? Yeah. And we do know that coming from the Maritimes, you do not always receive the recognition that you should, right? Mm -hmm. uh, well, unfortunately, that has to change. Not for John Paris Jr. Maritimers, we accomplish, can accomplish just as well as people from anywhere, every walks of life. And uh, whether you're black, white, whatever, you owe it to society to do the right thing. You don't owe it to society to do the wrong thing. It's to do the right thing because right's never wrong. Mm -hmm. That's all I'm going to say on that. And it's nothing to do with John Parrish or the movement that they've started. This is to, for all of the Maritimers that have been overlooked, bypassed, ignored, for whatever the reason may be, because they didn't come from, maybe it come from Halifax, but they weren't from the Toronto area. Mm -hmm. And there's no slight against Toronto. It's not their fault you come from Toronto. You know, but uh, there has to be honesty done for everyone, regardless of where they come from. And I think we're on that movement. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to be all right. John, I got to let you go. I could talk to you for another two hours, no, but we have to go. I, 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 I do actually quick question. Did you ever 
I'm sorry. Did you ever meet the Herb Brooks? Have you ever met Herb Brooks? When you said you, you brought yeah. those Bantam guys, yeah. that kind of reminded me of the movie Miracle. And he's like, you want these guys? They're not even... You ever well, meet Herb? Like, seems yeah. like similar personalities. Well, Herb was more of a motivator. I know, but you know what I mean. Yeah, like, I know what you mean. Like, but you uh, we him? steal from everyone. Yeah, okay. Coaches. And, and coaches. And coaches usually stick together, too. Uh, we can be the worst enemies in a game and be friends. Actually, before we go, Gene Ubriaco, who coached the Pittsburgh Penguins, who was coaching the Atlanta Knights before I took over, uh-huh. and a gentleman was asking me the other day, he said, you and Ubriaco don't get along. I said, Gene Ubriaco and I are friends. <laughs> I told, and he said, what? I said, yeah. I said, we had the reunion in Atlanta. The first person I called was Gene. And he said he wasn't coming at the beginning. And I said, Gene, if you don't come, I'm not going. So he showed up with his wife and all that. And we were together. And uh, it's just uh, it's the rumor mill, huh? Yeah. You know how yeah. it works? Well, it's never the same. So only believe 5% of what you hear because you may get embarrassed because if, if you ask me, I'm going to tell you the truth. But. So don't ask. My le- I learned this lesson in junior. I had a, it was my first couple games, and my coach was yelling at the other coach. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, those guys hate each other. And then I was getting ready to go on the bus, and mm-hmm. I kind of just walk into the coach's room, and it's those two guys sitting, like, having a beer. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it, that's yeah. not they, – they're it is what it is. They're friends. They're, yeah, and uh, we all pay at that coach in Granby. The, before, and we're going to stop because we'll be going all day. Yeah. <laughs> we all pay at coach of Granby Bison. I took over for him. He was coach GM, and I took over the job. They yeah. fired him. Who do you think had me at his apartment explaining to me about the team? He said, the components, Real Payment. Yep. That's Gishwinau. They, they, they're, they're good people out there. They, they're they're not. Uh, we people. exchanged. Yeah. They never looked at me as a black guy. They said, I was one of the coaches. I love it. Next time I'm out your way, I'm going to give you a call. We're going to go golfing, all right? All right. Sounds good. What's okay. your handicap? Uh, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> well, prob- okay, we got we to stop talking. Well, probably five. Five? Oh, yeah. You're a little bit on, a, on a good day, I may be three, but I play every day. Every day? Well, you got the weather for it. Yes, every day early in the morning when it's when it's warm, and when it gets cooler, it's in the afternoon. No, I play every day. I practiced two years without without ever playing a game. I was six months just practicing with my irons. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had a golf pro friend of mine. I'd give him <laughs> hockey lessons, and he'd give me the golf. So that's the way it was. Right. I'm a little crazy like that, I guess. When I start something, I... I, I won't go halfway, and that's my problem. I play music, same thing. Oh, so yeah? Keyboard, yeah. I, I, I'm a, no, a no-hit wonder. <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least, you try, at least you're trying. Yeah. You're sponging. You're yeah. working. Well, I, I'm taking courses still from neural skills for music. Are you? Yeah, bec- and I've seen a huge improvement in my music. That's awesome. So now I have to sing a song for Sid the Kid. When if, if we <laughs> ever get this through, then keyboard and a couple of maritimers with a bass and drum and guitar and... Your Hall of Fame speech, when you get inducted, you'll send a, sing a little song. That's how it'll go. Sidney Crosby, Nathan McKinnon, Grays. Uh, Marshawn. Marshawn. And the, uh, the uh, kid, uh, Matheson. You know, all our local boys. Liam O'Brien's here, too. Liam O'Brien, yeah. It's yeah, grown. All, all our local boys. Yep. All right, everyone listening, thank you very much uh, for tuning in. I hope that was a, a treat for you like it was for me. Um, I will link the... Uh, I will link the, the petition... Uh, below to this podcast uh, so you can go you can vote put your signature um, and we can get mr paris to toronto that's it we're out peace too much stuff on my heart right now man i gladly risk it all right now
life or death situation, man. Y'all, y'all, y'all don't really understand how I feel right now, man. It's your boy Kanye Titter. Shot Town, what's going on? For breakfast, an intro for dessert Somebody order pancakes, I just sip the scissor That right there could drive a sane man bizzard Not to worry, Mr. Ace to the Izzles, back to wizard How do you console my mom? Or give a light support Telling her son's own life support And just imagine how my girl feel On the plane, scared as hell That a guy looked like Emmett Till She was with me before the deal She been trying to be mine She a Delta, so she been throwing that dynasty sign No use me trying to be lying I've been Trying to be signed, trying to be a millionaire. How I use two lifelines in the same hospital where Biggie Smalls died. The doctor said I had blood clots, but I ain't Jamaican man. Story on MTV, and I ain't trying to make a band. I swear this right here, history in the making, man. I really apologize to everyone right now. If, if it's unclear at all, man, they got my mouth wired shut for like I don't know. The doctor said like six weeks. You know we had reconstruction. I had reconstructive surgery on my jaw. I looked in the mirror, half of my jaw was in the back of my mouth, man, I couldn't believe it. And I'm still here for y'all right now, man. This is what I got to say right here, dog. Yeah, turn me up, yeah, uh. What if somebody from the shadow was ill? Got a deal on the hottest rap label of Brown. But he wasn't talking about coke and birds, it was more like spoken word. Except he's really putting it down. And he explained the story about how blacks came from glory and what we need to do in the game. Good dude, bad night, right place, wrong time. In the blink of an eye, his whole life changed. If you could feel how my face felt, you would know how Mace felt. Thank God I ain't too cool for the safe belt. I swear where the guy drive a two on a sue I got a lawyer for the case to keep us in my safe Safe, my dogs couldn't tell if I I look like Tom Cruise on Vanilla Sky It was televised It's been an accident like Geico They thought I was burned up like Pepsi did Michael I must got an angel Cause look how death missed his ass Unbreakable, what you thought they call me Mr. Glass Look back on my life like the ghost of Christmas past Toys R Us where I used to spend that Christmas cash And I still won't grow up I'm a grown ass kid Swear I should be locked up for stupid sh** that I did But I'm a champion So I turn tragedy to triumph Make Music that's fire, get yeah. my soul through the wire. Woo. You know what I'm saying? When the doctor told me I had a um, I was gonna have to have a plate in my chin. I said, dog, don't you realize I'm never making on a plane now? It's bad enough I got all this jewelry on. She can't be serious, man.